Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of In No Hurry. I'm your host, Cole Douglas Claiborne. Happy to be back with you guys again for another episode of the show. And we've got a great show for you this week. My guest this week is Dr. Derwin Gray. He is an author and the pastor at Transformation Church just south of Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm just so excited to share this conversation with you guys because Derwin is one of the smartest and wisest people that I've had the opportunity to talk to for this show. And I'm so excited to have him on here to talk about his new book and his life in the NFL and just so many other things. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. Derwin is a former NFL player. He played for the Indianapolis Colts and the Carolina Panthers before going to seminary and becoming a minister and a preacher and an author. And he's got such a great story. And this book in particular is one of my favorite that I have read about the subject of happiness. And happiness is just one of those topics that is sort of an abstract concept to wrap our heads around. And especially whenever you think about it from a biblical standpoint, it's hard to wrap our heads around what that actually looks like. And so this conversation is really all about how can we as people, as Christians, find true happiness. And on top of that, he brought so much wisdom about the racial injustice issues that have faced our country this year. And on top of that, he is a BYU graduate, played football at BYU and Western Kentucky, which is my alma mater, plays BYU later this year. So we got to talk a little bit of football and have a little friendly trash talk about that as well. But more importantly, this conversation is jam-packed full of wisdom and intelligence and knowledge from Dr. Gray. And I know that this is going to bless you guys. So thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Dr. Derwin L. Gray, author and pastor at Transformation Church. Well, Pastor Derwin Gray is my guest today. Pastor, thanks for joining the show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Uh, it's such an honor and a privilege, particularly uh, knowing that my Brigham Young Cougars are going to beat your Western Kentucky Hilltoppers. <laughs> What's a Hilltopper? So the school is built on a hill, and so oh. um, it's honestly it's kind of a trek to get up to the top of campus. Uh, it's like my English classes were at the very top of campus, and then my journalism classes were at the bottom of campus. So ah. uh, as as I got older into college, I became wiser and started taking the bus up the hill instead of walking it. And so <laughs> that's how they got the name. There's there's actually quite a few hills here in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I actually live I'm back here in Bowling Green, um, but the school is built on top of a hill. You wouldn't know what a hilltopper is based on our mascot, though, because our mascot kind of looks like a big, uh, big version of Elmo. But oh I, wow! Actually, this year, so they had a uh, a big, huge mascot. Some, some, I think it was Sirius X, XM Sports. They put together some big mascot contest, and BYU's mascot and West, Western Kentucky's mascot, which is Cosmo. Cosmo. So those are those are two of the the most well known, well recognized mascots they were not even in the initial bracket of this thing and so all the BYU fans all the western fans were up in arms over it so then they added them they, they seeded it like an NCAA basketball tournament yeah they, they added those two as like a 16 seed they ended up being the two that faced off in the championship and so uh and it who was won? BYU won now there was uh I will say the uh, athletic department at western was was curious they, they, they thought, thought they thought there was maybe some ballot stuffing going on in that contest so, <laughs> I I I would not put it past the Cougar faithful to get the victory. So, but uh, we can uh, we can do some friendly 
trash talking when they play later this year. That's right. Yeah, it's on it's on Halloween. It was actually supposed to be Western's homecoming, and then the team that they were supposed to play, Old Dominion, actually canceled their season. So Western needed another game, and yep. they ended up getting a game. They're they're going to BYU, and all the fans thought that maybe that game was birthed out of that mascot contest because there was actually some. Uh, some controversy on Twitter over that. So it was really funny to watch. It was funny to watch. That serious, man. I guess that was the only way either one of our schools could actually win a national championship. (laughs) And there were no sports going on at the time. So people were starving for some form of competition. So they really rallied around it. But your book, The Good Life, came out this year. And, uh, you know, I I, truly, I I feel like this is one of the best books on happiness that, that I have read. You know, it says The Good Life, What Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness. And happiness is one of those things that we're all striving for. But it's, it's hard to find and, and it's really subjective, you know, to define what happiness is. How did you come up with this idea for this book? And, and how did you know that this was a book that you needed to write? Yeah. So back in 2014, um, I was counseling people at Transformation Church. That's the church my wife and I co-founded in 2010. So just from counseling, mentoring, discipling, uh, reaching people who were yet to discover Christ there was this theme that people were just unhappy, whether they're rich, poor, middle-class, there was a lack of happiness. And so I thought to myself, like, what does Jesus say about happiness? And hiding in plain sight in the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever preach, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with what's called the Beatitudes. There's seven characteristics that Jesus described as blessed. And it uses the Greek word for blessed, makaros, and it literally means happy. So happy are the poor in spirit. That that means happy are those who are emptied of themselves and filled with God. Happy are those who mourn. That means happy are those who um, connect with what breaks God's heart. And so there's seven characteristics that are described there. And in essence, Jesus is saying the happiness that I want to give you it's not necessarily about good things always happening. It's about me making you good for the world. Because Matthew 5, 13 through 16 talks about being salt and light. Well, the people who are salt and light, the city on the hill, is not a country. It's, it's God's people who reflect the beatitude. So the good life, happiness, is more about becoming who you were meant to be than what's happening around you. And so typically when we think of happiness, we think of great situation, great circumstances. We think that we're getting everything we want. And Jesus is saying, I'm offering you a happiness that's not contingent upon good circumstances, but that's contingent upon a good God who's doing a good work in you. And here's what's beautiful. When you look at the characteristics that Jesus describes, they're actually a picture of holiness. So happiness and holiness are two sides of the same coin. So this invitation in the salvation that Jesus offers is so much bigger and better than we thought. He's offering not only the forgiveness of sins, but the totality of his redemption is the happiness that you want to find is found in me transforming you to make you good for the world. And so that excites me. Writing this book changed me. Like in this time of COVID, 
man, God has been so gracious. Yeah. And it's not because the circumstances have been awesome. It's like writing this book. I finished it in the fall of 2019. I had no idea we would go into a yeah. pandemic, <laughs> but it's really, really blessed me. And it's been a best seller according to the evangelical publishing, whatever, what, whatever, which is, which is, which is huge. And yeah. so who would ever thought that in the middle of a pandemic, you write a book called the good life, <laughs> how to find happiness and people are buying it and being changed. People are, yeah. I mean, people are striving for, or they're, they're searching for something. I mean, this year it's been hard for everybody. And, you know, I, I, you kind of mentioned it, you know, this year it, it has been a blessing and not just because things have been going great, but I am trying to shift my perspective. You know, everybody's saying how this year has been so hard and they can't wait for 2020 to be over. And I totally understand that. But I, I was talking to my wife about this. I said, you know, there's been a lot of things that have been really hard about this year, but I also have noticed that my relationship with God has grown more this year than it ever has. My reliance on God has grown more and my faith has grown deeper because of that, because we have to, you know, whenever things are bad like this, we have to cling to that. And this year, you know, a lot of things that bring us happiness or that people search happy, search for happiness in sports, entertainment, uh, anything that maybe we, we can distract ourselves with for a long time that wasn't happening. And so, uh, you know, how much of, just the fact that people were, you know, locked down, unable to do what uh, they normally are used to doing, you know, people that are big sports fans this year has been really hard on them and people can't go to concerts. They couldn't go to movies. There's a lot of things that people normally do to find happiness. They're kind of realizing what life is like without that, you know, and how much, obviously our, as Christians, we want to believe that we find our happiness in God. And that's our ultimately our goal for people who maybe, maybe you've, you've talked to people who are new to the faith who have read your book, or maybe just people that, you know, this, this year has been eye opening and they have read your book. What's kind of been the feedback from people that you talk to in terms of how this book and this year have affected them in their Christian walk? Well, I'll start with this year first. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers when good things happen, but in suffering, you know, he speaks through a megaphone. And the imagery that I see for 2020 is like we're kids on a beach building sandcastles and COVID was this wave that just came and knocked the sandcastle down. And we realized that our lives have not been built on a firm foundation. And I'm speaking primarily to Christians that instead of worshiping Jesus, uh, we tend to use Jesus. Yeah. And it's one of these things of, well, when the job isn't there, when there's uncertainty, when there's division and all the stuff that we see, now you'll understand, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah. To be poor in spirit means it's like, God, I'm drowning. And if you don't save me, I'm going to die. Yeah. It's that type of reliance. And that's what brings happiness is, I'm so emptied of myself that I can now be filled with you. And I think that's one of the beautiful aspects of Jesus's teaching. He doesn't start with peacemaking or mercy. He starts with being poor in spirit because if you're too full of yourself, you can't be filled with God. Yeah. And I think that COVID has unearthed things that we were filled with that were not him. And I think, this is a time of, of renewal and refocusing for followers of 
Jesus. I, I think inherent in Western and particularly American Christianity is Jesus is a transaction, you know, uh, you give me this, I give you that. And we don't see it as no, actually he's a gracious and loving King who invites us into his kingdom so that his kingdom will come to earth. Now, in order for his kingdom to come to earth through us, he has to shape us into a beatitude kind of people. And by the way, there's a happiness that happens when you do that, mm -hmm. that transcends unemployment, that transcends the racial division, that transcends this circus of a political season that we have. It's like one big bad reality show. <laughs> and so there's a greater and more beautiful happiness. But yeah, I think a lot of our idols are being exposed. And, um, you know, the feedback that I've gotten is people have said, wow, I never thought of happiness as God making me who I was supposed to be. That the happiness I wanted was very flimsy. This is a, a strong life-giving happiness. I'm, I'm seeing churches go through the book and the Bible study. And on Amazon, it has, I think, close to 200 reviews. Wow. Uh, overwhelming. I think all of them are five-star. And so I'm seeing God move powerfully. But at the end of the day, this book is about Jesus. And it's about what Jesus and Jesus alone has accomplished. It's about him inviting us into his story, not us inviting him into our story. And I think that when we can see Jesus for who he is and how beautiful he is, we surrender our rights to him so that he can make us right. He can make us good. What I like to say is, as we allow the spirit of God to graciously turn us into these happy beatitudes people. Uh, we become the people that we want to be friends with. Uh, we yeah. become the people that we would want our kids to marry. We, we, we become the people that we've always wanted to become. One line that you wrote that, that speaks to that. Uh, and I made note of this. So you said to love our neighbors is to love God, to love God requires that we love our neighbors. And I think whenever that transformational uh, perspective that you're talking about where we take the focus off of ourselves and it's on Jesus. I think the result of that is that we are more focused on our neighbors than ourselves. And, you know, I think that in tune transitions into happiness. And so, you know, how much of, you know, as you were writing this too, you know, or just in, in studying this, you know, has that been on your heart too, that to, to preach that message that, you know, happiness doesn't come from, self-centeredness. It doesn't come from thinking of ourselves. It comes from loving our neighbors. Yeah. You know, um, basically what I wanted to do is I am a biblical exegete. I wanted to mind this text for all that it was worth. And so I just wanted to share out of the overflow of what Christ was saying, what Christ was doing in my own life so that people could join into that. But but the reality is this. Okay, so so um, when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? He said, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So upward, love God completely because he first loved us, 
inward to love ourselves correctly means I see myself as God sees me in Christ, that who I am is based on the redemptive work of Christ. That begins to heal me, and then that moves me to love my neighbor as we love myself. Well, for Jesus, to, when he said, love my neighbor as I love myself, his, his first century Jewish audience would have known he was quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 19. And to love my neighbor as I love myself is justice. It's compassion. For example, in that Leviticus text, uh, the Lord tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, when you glean your fields, leave the fruit and the vegetation that falls to the ground, leave the edges for the immigrant, the foreigner, so they can have some food to eat. And when they see how generous you are, they'll say, who is your God? It talks about how to treat people. So, so loving your neighbor is the way we love God because God loves people. And I think, uh, gosh, sadly, sadly, disappointedly, we have made it okay to say, well, I confess Christ, but I don't like those pe people. Yeah. That, that is heresy. Yeah. Um, that is out of step with the gospel. And so to love my neighbor is not willy-nilly anything goes. To love my neighbor looks like Jesus with the woman at the well. Mm -hmm. When she comes to him, he doesn't go, look at you, you're shacking up, you're no good. He starts with a basic need, give me water. He talks to her, she recognizes he's a rabbi, he's a Jewish man. A rabbi and a Jewish man will never talk to a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. He, he meets her where she's at and then he confronts her with, this is who I am, I'm living water. And if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. Mm -hmm. Good news, and then he communicates, well, who you're living with is not your husband now. You know, and so that's what it means to love my neighbor is justice, that we care about things that may not affect us personally. That's when you know you're growing in love is when things that don't affect you personally bother you because it hurts people who are made in the image of God. Yeah. And I that's think happiness, I think that that this year has been an eye opening uh, year for those very concepts. And I saw a, a pretty alarming stat today. Relevant posted something about how 23% of young evangelicals is something I think it was, I, I saw it last night. It was something about how young evangelicals, and you may have seen the same thing, don't feel that uh, sticking up for racial justice is important. Uh, and that was mostly white evangelicals. And that was alarming because yes, if, the, this, uh, if this year doesn't wake you up, then I don't know what's going to. Yeah, the article by Barna said that uh, white evangelicals are actually more resistant to teaching against and standing up against yeah. racial injustice. And, I, I, you know, Barna is reliable. In my meetings with people, I'm seeing more white evangelicals wanting to get equipped, wanting right. to get coached. And I, I think what's so important as well is not everybody who says they follow Jesus actually do. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I believe that the enemy places agents of deceptions within the body of Christ. The wheat and tares grow up side by side, and sometimes it's indistinguishable. 
And so, but, but here's the reality. Um, the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit's power is raising up a new kind of Christianity, which is actually the old kind of Christianity where there's a deep love for Jesus and his redemptive work, but also where racial justice and reconciliation is intrinsic to the gospel, where you care about life preborn in the womb and life all the way to the tomb, mm -hmm. where we see politics not as the end-all be-all, but as a form, as a tool, but we see that the politics of Jesus is greater. And we're not the party of the elephant, we're not the party of the donkey. We're the party of the lamb. And I Good. see God raising up a people who, uh, who love with a scandalous love, a scandalous yeah. grace and reliance on the Holy Spirit. And so I just believe that that's happening. It has to take place because these Gen Zs, they see injustice and they want to be against it. They just don't know that Jesus, that racism and the destruction of racism is a Jesus idea. Yeah. In all respect to Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the fight against racism is a Jesus Christ issue. And sadly, the church in America has not done a very good job of that. Uh, but I want to hold up that mantle that racism, ethnocentrism, prejudice has been crucified by the cross. And it's God's people who are agents of reconciliation. Obviously there, there's pretty obvious things that Christians can and should do, but you know, I feel like there's been a lot of people that for some reason this year is finally the year that they've woken up. Now, granted, I, I we would like to think that they have woken up before this year, but, but whether it was COVID and there'd be no, no other distractions happening, but it seemed like, and I wrote about this in the summer, it seemed like the George Floyd incident was kind of a seminal moment for a lot of people to realize okay, wait a second, this is going too far. You know, and you talked about how, you know, a lot of evangelicals, they, they want to be equipped, they want to be, they want to help, but some, maybe they don't know how, some churches don't know how to equip their their staff, their their congregation, you know, as a pastor yourself, uh, and as an African-American man, I mean, what is your, what is your word of, of, of advice and word of, uh, you know, just action for people that want to get involved in this, but maybe they don't know how or don't know where to start. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Learn to be human. Love people. Pretty now, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to elaborate, but I just want the idea of even that question for us as Christians, not that it's a bad question, it's a real question, but it it shows the state of American Christianity that right. we have to ask, what do I need to do to be human? Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's what, what, it, what it is, is how do I actually learn how to be human to where I want my fellow humans to experience the same justice that I do? All right. Right. So first of all, this is a massive failure of discipleship in the church. The idea that there are churches that are world renowned, but have no clue about racial injustice, racial reconciliation through the gospel is an indictment of our woeful discipleship and underdeveloped theological reality. So 
a lot of white brothers and sisters are, are going to secular books because they don't think the gospel has the answer. So in The Good Life, the chapter on peacemaking is a theology of ethnic reconciliation and practical steps to take. So, so let me start here. Let me lay the theology and then I'll give some practices, okay? Mm -hmm. Number one, in Genesis 11, God's people scattered, they rebelled against him. In Genesis 12, God says, Abraham, through you, I'm gonna give you a big old family and it's gonna be made up of all the families of the earth. So that's a diverse family. God works through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you get Joseph, and then eventually um, you get Jesus through the nation of Israel. Jesus comes as the Messiah. Galatians 3.14 says that Jesus is the promise, that Jesus fulfills the promise to Abraham. So Jesus, through his sinless life, his atoning sacrificial death on the cross, resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, God gets his family back. That's why in the new heavens and new earth, it says every nation, tribe, and tongue will be worshiping Jesus saying, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty and all types of wonderful, fantastic things that we will do. It'll never be a boring day in the new heavens and new earth. We will co-love uh, 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 the universe with Jesus, all right? So multi-ethnic ministry is at the heart of the gospel. God. God wants to save a people who family. So we established that. So what can my white brothers and sisters do? Number one is listen. Now, when you have a privileged position in society, it's hard to listen because you've always given the advice. Does that make sense? Yep. So you have to learn to listen to the narrative and stories of other people. Number two, you have to learn to lament the stories. So my wife is from Montana. First time I went in the 90s, we drove through a Native American reservation and I was shocked. I could not believe that human beings lived on reservations. Uh, the brain health illness that pervades the res, alcoholism, substance abuse, diabetes, even now with COVID. And some people will say, well, they just need to do better. And conservatives need to learn to think systemically and structurally, not just individually. It's both. For conservative Christians to say, well, systems and structures cannot be systemically racist is to deny Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, where you hear about the principalities and powers. It's also denies total depravity. Broken human beings create broken systems. Thus, there can be systematic injustice and systematic racism. Mm -hmm. And so as I've gotten to learn the story of Native Americans in Montana, my heart for them, I lament. And we've been a part of some causes to help. Like one is getting the word out on mental health, on the, on the res, right? So you listen, you learn, and you love. You begin to see people as though Jesus Christ died for them because he did. Yeah. Fourth is you leverage your life as an advocate. So it's not enough just to be uh, uh, uh I'm not racist, it's how do I become a gracious in the world? And so 
you listen, you learn, you love, you leverage. And to leverage means uh, we move beyond just saying, well, I'm not racist. We become anti-racist. It means that we join Jesus. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Could it be that so many of us are so unsatisfied because we haven't found satisfaction in joining Jesus in bringing righteousness? And righteousness for followers of Christ extends beyond the preborn. It's life outside of the womb. Um, if Jesus didn't care, he wouldn't have fed hungry people, healed the sick, and those types of things. You know, and so we need a more of a holistic understanding of his kingdom. And that brings joy to us because we're flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's so good. I'm so glad you, you, you said all these things because, you know, I think as this year has gone on and I realized even with, you know, the small ministry that this podcast is, I hadn't discussed racial issues at all really until things happened this year and i think that's a that's a failure on my part and i think a lot of white christians are realizing we need to do more and use whatever platforms we have to help and be engaged be and i think it's, like you said the first thing we need to do is listen you know understand mm -hmm. the issues and, and i wrote something uh, earlier this year and basically saying like look i i recognize the privilege that that I've been given. And I need to recognize that so that I can use what advantages I have to help those who are disadvantaged. I mean, think about, you know, you played in the NFL and, and so you're familiar now with the Rooney rule. And how many times has a, has, a, has a minority candidate interviewed for a head coaching job, but not gotten it? You know, and I'll use Romeo well, Cornell as an example. I mean, he was, he's from Western Kentucky uh, or played here, coached here. But, you know, it's like, I, I just – for me, it's like, I, I feel like if it were me, a lot of times, and maybe this isn't the case, and you have probably way more knowledge of the NFL than I do, but I, I hope it's not a case where they're just checking off a box that, hey, we've, we've interviewed our minority candidate. And like, for me, if I was interviewing for a job, I wouldn't have to ever worry if that was the situation. Because I'm, you know, it's just, I've never had to experience that. Yeah, well, you know, I think if you look at the players in the NFL, and you look at the lack of, of, uh, black head coaches, you, you know, uh, nothing personal against Joe Judge from the Giants, but I've never heard in all my years of being around the NFL, a special teams coach getting a head coaching job over the offensive coordinator for the Super Bowl winning Kansas City Chiefs. Eric Bieniemy for several years has led a high-powered offense with the Chiefs, and several coaches, some with no NFL experience who are white, got those positions. Yeah. And, and let me make a point here, and I, I think this is so, so important. I personally don't use the term white privilege because it's packed with so much angst and it turns folks off. But this is what white privilege actually means. It it does not mean white people don't work hard. Right. It does not mean that white pe people have not done the things personally to accomplish. What it means is your whiteness has never been a disadvantage for you. Right. 
And so when people go, well, there's no such thing as white privilege, I'll say, well, how long did your ancestors have the capacity to vote? Because mine just like, just got it. Yeah. And then it moves to, well, Derwin, don't bring up the past. Well, why do we have to bring up 9-11? <laughs> why do we have to br bring up the bombing of Pearl Har Harbor? We bring it up because those are tragic events and attacks on our nation. Well, Native American genocide, slavery, Jim Crow law, women not being able to vote, segregation is an attack on our nation. It, but more importantly, it's, a it's an attack on God because people are made in the image of God and they're valuable. And if you don't understand your past, you cannot move forward to a brighter future. But also to my white brothers and sisters, if your identity is found in the success of America, that's idolatry. Yeah. We are citizens of the kingdom of God first, which should make us good citizens of the kingdom secondly. But that does not mean that we can't look back at America and go, man, you know what? That was really bad. How can I use my life to make it better? Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I teach English, I teach high school English and uh, a lot, whatever we, whenever we read any kind of a story, uh, especially if it's a really if it's fiction or nonfiction, I, I like to do a lot of contextual stuff to set up what it is that we're reading. And, I, and basically I preach to my students, history is so important because you need to understand the context of, cer of certain things and why they happen. And I think like you're saying, understanding the past allows you to understand why things are in the present. And if you don't, then it's going to be a hard, you're going to have a hard time understanding why things are the way they are now. You know, or it helps you develop, um, a calloused heart. Yeah. You know, um, the aspect of, you know, some people will say, well, pastor, you know, well, uh, why don't black people get mad when black people shoot each other? Black on black crime. Well, I, I'm not happy with any sin. Yeah. And I, I think the recent statistics are like 92% of crime is black on black crime, but 83% of white crime is white on white crime because people commit crimes within the context that they find themselves in. Yeah. And so it's one of these things that like we have to take a step back and love, like, like, no, I, I'm not, I'm not for any crime. The aspect of police brutality is different because police are to protect and to serve, but there's also a historical narrative that police oftentimes the scales of justice have not been weighed properly for black men. Now, in saying that, do you know I've been given awards from the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department for our partnerships with the police? You can be pro-police and pro-police reform. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not one or the other. It's, man, I pastor great policemen who do a great job, who I pray for. But we also want to reform and root out the ones who are unhealthy. Right. It's not that hard. When you root out some of these evils we're talking about, um, how much can that help us reach or at least have people hear the type of happiness that we're talking about with God where um, you know, you're rooting out the evils and people are able to open their hearts up to the truth of God. Cause I think like you said, people have a calloused heart. They're, they're not hearing really any, any truth other than what they're wanting to hear in their head. And so 
uh, kind of going off on a tangent here, but I mean, how much of this it you know, takes to, to root, we need to root out the evils so that people can open up well, their heart as well. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it's, and it all begins and ends with the person of Jesus Christ, because we're all evil. That's why we needed a good savior. And I just, I just want to camp for a moment on uh, blessed or happy are the merciful for they will receive mercy. First and foremost, God was merciful to us. How do we know? Because the cross and the empty tomb. God is merciful. And when you've experienced God's mercy, it moves you into the world to be merciful. And God says, Jesus says, happy are the merciful. A great example of mercy is when Jesus talks about the story of the Good Samaritan. In the first century Second Temple Jewish world, um, a good Samaritan would have been like saying a good Nazi. The Jews yeah. and the Samaritans had all types of issues from ethnic conflict and prejudiced religious conflict as well. And so Jesus tells a story. There was a man coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, that, is a, that is a treacherous trek, and it was called the bloody way back in Jesus' time because robbers were there. Well, the man gets robbed. And a Levite and a priest pass him. Now, the thing is, is they're coming from Jerusalem. So they had already done their temple sacrifices and services. So there was no worry about being contaminated. But yet they pass by this Jewish man. So let me pause here. Mercy means I don't pass by. So Jesus then tells a story of a good Samaritan, that the Samaritan stops. So mercy is not afraid to go through religious and ethnic barriers to heal a hurt. Next, the Good Samaritan puts oil on the wound, that's to keep it soft, wine, that's to kill infection, and he wraps a bandage on it and puts the man on a donkey and then pays for a hotel for an inn for 14 days of wages. The wine costs money, the donkey costs money. The bandages cost money. The hotel costs money. So mercy's not afraid to count the cost and spend it. Thirdly, there's something else that the Samaritan lost too. The story doesn't tell us, but I think it's safe to assume that when he went back to Samaria and told his Samaritan friends, hey, guess what I did for a Jew? They would say, you're a traitor. How could you do that for a Jew? How could you help a Jew, our enemy? Well, Jesus tells this story of a merciful Samaritan. This is what love and mercy looks like. And in that story, this is what justice and love looks like. That's humanity at its best. And what is a Samaritan? A Jew and a Gentile in one body. What's the church supposed to be? a Jew and a Gentile in one body. And here's the biggest lesson in this whole thing. You and I are the man on the side of the road who's been bloodied and beaten by sin and death. And Jesus comes down incarnate nation. And he's not afraid of our hurt and our pain. As a matter of fact, he gets hurt for us. He goes through pain for us. Instead of uh, bandaging our blood, he bleeds for us. He gives the ultimate cost. He gives his life. 
That's what it means to be merciful. And in that story, racial justice, evangelism, mission, discipleship, acts of mercy, it's all right there and the nature of the multi-ethnic church. So my question for us as American Christians, are we the Levite and the priest or are we the good Samaritan? Yeah. Man, that's that's challenging. And that that's that's a great challenge for our readers. That's I our to our listeners, I should say. And I I love that. And one of the things that you wrote about in your book too, that, that hit me as you were talking about that, you know, you're saying agreeing with someone is not a prerequisite for loving someone. And I think that is an important message to hear right now as well, especially as we enter into an election season, even among Christians, we've seen disagreements and that's played out publicly. And so, um, you know, I guess I kind of wanted to camp out on that statement too, because it was one that as I read through this book, I even tweeted it because it stuck out to me because it's important to hear, like, you know, as you're talking about even differences within the church, agreeing with somebody is not a prerequisite for us as Christians to love someone. And I think even now I've seen vitriolic statements where uh, even among Christians saying like, how can we, how can we like, like toward democratic people, toward other people who don't follow along with their beliefs? It's like, how can we support them? How can we love them? It's like, we're called to love everybody. It doesn't matter. Like God didn't say love some people or love them conditionally. It was love everyone. Actually, one of the big things that he said, and I, pointed out in a good life, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44 and 45, he says, love your enemies. Yep. And one of the reasons why he tells us to love our enemies is because holding bitterness in our hearts towards another person is like drinking poison and hoping that person dies. The person who actually dies is us. Yeah. But here's a problem though. Um, a lot of people are being discipled by Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow instead yeah. of, instead of Jesus Christ. And, yeah. and so one of the most encouraging things that I saw at transformation church, it was super dope is there was an older white man with a MAGA hat on next to an African-American young lady in her twenties with a, Black Lives Matter movement shirt on with a big old afro and both of their hands were raised praising the Lord. Wow. Um, there are people who have good reasons for voting for Donald Trump. Like celebrate the good things that he's done. There are believers. Matter of fact, one third of democratic uh, 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 people don't believe in abortion. They want the d Democrats to be more quote unquote, pro-life. Mm -hmm. And so there are some Christians who say, I'm going to vote Democrat <clears throat> because I want to lower abortion by providing health care, by providing certain things. And so I think it's important <clears throat> that we don't get bamboozled by the donkey or the elephant. Yeah. And that we need people in both parties to be salt and to be light. But at the end of the day, though, I think the church has given over a lot of her power to the government. I would love to see churches do free healthcare cl clinics. Uh, over the last few years, we've made, in the last two years, we've made over 400,000 meals. That's almost a half million meals. It may be a half million by now. Our church have made over half million meals the last two years for people who need food. Yeah. Like that's what, 
financial generosity does. And, and, and here's another thing. Let me preach here for a minute. Uh, I, I read a study the other day that says the average Christian gives 2.3% of their income to the local church. And we're complaining about wearing masks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I think the greatest divider in our country today is not the devil. It's political idolatry, either on the left or on the right. Yep. I completely agree. And so I think people need to spend time with Jesus. Like if you spend time with Jesus, there's no way you're going to come and say, you, you, you know, uh, these undocumented people came to this country and let's separate kids and from their parents and put them in cages. Now, President Obama was the first one to put them in cages, but he yeah. kept them together. So I don't think human beings who cross the border for political asylum or whatever it may be, should be put in cages. Our nation is great enough that we can protect our border, but protect the dignity of a person's humanity. Yeah. Like we can actually do both. Yeah. Yeah. I, I The floor is always yours here, whatever you want to preach. So I, I love it. I mean, and that's, that's so true because it's all about, like you said, and you know, loving each other, it just all comes back to love. And that, that's, it's such a simple con. It's, it seems like such a simple concept, but it's so hard for us. And it's, it's so easy. And and it's just, especially right now as we're close to election to, to grab such a tight hold over something like that and really wrap our arms around it. And like you said, make it an idol. And I, I'm praying for, for my Christian brothers and sisters, really anybody that that doesn't happen as yeah. bad as I, I fear it could happen this election season. I've already seen, you know, some influential uh, people in the evangelical faith that I follow that, that have, have said some things that I just, I can't get behind because it's so like us versus them. Like this, like yeah, people, so, saying, so, people saying this is the most important election of their lifetime yeah, because of certain things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Cole, what I would say is this, is I think the last four years has been very revealing on what we actually worship. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'll leave it at that. And I'll, I'll, I'll just go back to God is raising up a new thing, which is going to be like the old thing where the centrality of Jesus, if you, if you want to know what Jesus was, was about, read Luke 4, 16 through 18. That is his messianic mandate. It is a quotation of Isaiah 61. For the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor, uh, to open the eyes of the blind, the captives, the prisoners for the year of Jubilee. Like he is describing what he's come to do. And think about this. If God didn't care about justice, he would not have freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Yep. He cared about justice. Yeah. And we as people are to bring that justice to the world, knowing that ultimate justice will not come until the new heavens and the new earth. And so going back to your theme that we opened up with, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. In other words, happy are those who partner with God in the rule and reign of God. Yeah. And those who partner best with God are those who know their deep need for God. Happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's not just a trip to heaven when you die. That's representing heaven on earth while you live. 
Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Derwin. Just interrupting it real quick to tell you about a couple of things and mainly to invite you to sign up for my weekly newsletter that I send out each Monday. This is something that I have really enjoyed doing since I started it earlier this year. And I just tried to fill your inbox each Monday with some encouraging words, some scripture, a link to this podcast, and sometimes some free giveaways. So if you like free stuff, if you like free books, free coffee, other things like that, you never know. Sometimes I'll give away free stuff to the people that are subscribed to my newsletter. And I've really just enjoyed the community that I've built with that. And so go ahead while we're on this break, sign up, head over to my website, coleclaiborne.com. You'll find a tab called newsletter, or you can sign up using the pop-up box that will come up whenever you visit the website. So we're going to take a quick break go ahead and head to my website or just click the link in the show notes. Go ahead and subscribe to my newsletter and we will be back with Derwin right after this. Derwin, this is great. And I, I told you, I couldn't let you get out of here without us talking a little football. And so, okay. uh, you know, Western plays your BYU Cougars coming up here at the end of October. Um, I, I I fear that your Cougars are probably favored in that game, but uh, I well, guess we we are a better team. Like we're gonna we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna uh, we are we are gonna win, and let me tell you why. And this isn't boasting. This is the most physical and imposing BYU team I've seen in probably six or seven years. Like they have some grown men on the O line and the D line. I'm talking some full grown human beings like these dudes are jacked wow um you know so like this is a really good class that they've developed and cultivated they look disciplined um they to me after what i seen them do to navy they look like a top four team in the sec wow they would they would they would win uh, whatever side of the ACC Clemson is not on, they would win that side. Of course, wow. they get destroyed by Clemson because Clemson, <laughs> Clemson is an NFL team. Yeah, but this is a really, really good BYU team. Um, with their schedule, if they are focused and healthy, I could see them running the running the table. Wow. And that's a tough game for Western because they've got to go to BYU, which, you know, you've played there. That's not an easy place for a road team to win. Altitude, and, man. Yeah, that's, that's another, that is another aspect. I don't know that Western has really played many games in that part of the country that they would be used to that, especially not – I mean, our conference goes all the way from Carolina to Texas, Conference USA, yeah. but there's nothing in there that gets them used to the altitude. and There's nothing really around this area where they can train with that. I will say this. They do have a quarterback transfer from Maryland who is kind of a runner slash, yeah. you know, throw a quarterback. So that, that helps them. They usually get some pretty good talent. And their head coach is the brother of Clay Helton, who is the uh, head coach at USC. I actually had Western's yeah. coach on my show. I think it was like episode four or five, one of those, sometime early when I first started the show last fall. He's a really right. good guy. He's a really good guy. So should be a good game. What's your, what's your score prediction for that one? Oh, I think it'll be something like 38-21, Okay. I got to go. Okay, so 38 38-21, 38-17 from you. I'll say I'm going I got to pick Western here just to have a little stake in it. So I'm going to pick I'm going to I'm going to say Western's going to pull out a squeaker. It's going to be 
27. I'm going to say it's going to be yeah. a one point game. 28, 27. That'll be my that'll be my pick. If if and I totally respect that, and it's very possible. If Western does win, it'll be close. If BYU does win, it'll be several touchdowns. I look forward to it, and I'm going to talk trash that week <laughs> on the Twitter to you. Western just played Louisville. They they hung in there. They played at Louisville, and I think they lost by two touchdowns. Um, Louisville's good, man. Yeah, so that was a good game, and I'm really bummed because I'm from Indiana. And Western was supposed to play IU this year, and that game got canceled because of the Big Ten scheduling issues. And I was really pumped to go up there and watch them play in Bloomington because they played there a few years ago, but uh, that game's not going to happen now. But uh, and you got to play some professional ball in Indianapolis. Uh, what was your time yeah. like in Indiana? I mean, I know you wrote about it in your book, and I know Indianapolis is, is one of those big cities that doesn't really feel like a, a major city. And it's like they do the city does really well at, at welcoming its professional athletes and the professional athletes who are there get really involved in the community. And I know you were when you were there, but what was your time like playing for the Colts? Yeah. Uh, Indian Indianapolis as a city was very, very good to us. We really, really enjoyed Indy. Um, January and February just was, we left. It was too cold. Yeah. (laughs) Midwest winter was too cold, but uh, yeah, no, we really enjoyed our time there, the city was great. We met lifelong friends. Uh, my time with the Colts was a great time. I uh, enjoyed playing, got to live out my childhood dream, came to know the Lord through uh, the Colts. And I'm just super thankful. I'm glad God brought us here to Carolina. Other than the allergies, it's yeah, incredible. Yeah. 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 I've, I've lived in the, the Midwest my whole life. And I, we're technically in the South now here in Southern Kentucky. I'm about, I'm in Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is about an hour North of Nashville. So um, I know you were just in Nashville, so you're familiar with this area, but the allergies are, are pretty bad in this area too. So um, it's always been like that. It's just terrible. So that's one thing I don't like about this area. I always finish uh, with, with one, with one final question. So my show is called in no hurry. And so the idea of that basically is uh, you know, our life kind of gets busy, gets crazy, maybe not so much during quarantine season, but uh, whenever things get out of hand and crazy busy for you, what do you like to do to, to peel back and slow down in your life a little bit? Go fishing. Really? Okay. I saw, yeah. Actually, I saw you caught three largemouth bass or something like that recently. Uh, I posted, uh, I think I posted four of them, but I, I, had a, I had a day the other day. Yeah, I I love to go fishing. Um, that's my quiet space, my quiet time. My grandmother and I used to go fishing when I was young and it's, uh, it's just, yeah, I love, I love it. Awesome. And you got to go out to the, the, uh, big sky country recently too, which is, it's a beautiful part of the country. So what was your favorite part about that trip? Being with my family, being with my wife, my children, my mother-in-law, it was, it was awesome. Great. I loved it. I love my time out there too. And I love seeing your pictures. I don't know what kind of phone you've got, but you've got some kind of a, an awesome camera that looks better than any, any camera phone I've ever seen. <laughs> it is a thank. Thank you. It is a Samsung galaxy S 20 ultra. I mean, that's better than any iPhone photos I've seen. I gotta say, I don't yeah. know if you did some editing or not, but it, I mean, those were some pretty phenomenal photos. Well, the lighting and the, and the backdrop and everything helps. But that's why I use a Samsung because of the camera quality. Yeah. I mean, that, that truly is better than even the newest iPhones that I've seen. You can't replicate that stuff. So that's like if you had like a, a Canon or, or Nikon, like actual yeah. real camera, that's what those it's pictures crazy, look like. Man. 
you could print those out and put them as like canvas photos all over your wall at your house or something. There's a <laughs> couple of them that I actually am. Yeah. I don't blame you because they were beautiful. And that's, I like my wife and I, we love traveling. We love going to national parks and that's one part of the country that I keep telling her we need to go to because I loved driving through South Dakota, seeing Bro, Badlands, seeing South, uh, Yellowstone and Glacier. Yeah. Yellowstone and Glacier. Yosemite yeah. is my favorite that we've been to. And we went to the Pacific Northwest a couple of years ago and went to Mount Rainier and to Olympic. Okay. Those are beautiful as well. But Yellowstone, Glacier, those are, those are two at the top of my list as well. So I'm jealous. I was living vicariously through your photos for sure. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. Well, uh, Dr. Derwin Gray, thank you so much for, for joining me on this show and for your wisdom and obviously for writing this book as well and for just pastoring us for an hour or so here on this podcast. And I hope people that listened uh, were able to, to gain some wisdom also from you. And if people want to connect with you, where, where should they go to find you? I know you're yeah, pretty you active know, on Twitter. Uh, yeah, just uh, or go to DerwinLGray.com, DerwinLGray.com. And that'll get you to Transformation Church, to all my books and podcasts and everything. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be talking some trash leading up to the game here on October 31st. All right. Go Cougars. Well, I am truly, truly blessed to have had Derwin on this podcast because his book, first of all, if you have not read it, please check out the link in the show notes. Go buy a copy of this book. It is one of my favorites that I've read this year. And the conversation that you just heard is kind of a microcosm of what the book is about. And just his wisdom that he brought to this conversation is the same wisdom he brought to this book as well. And so I actually listened to this book and read it at the same time. So I got to hear him read it. Uh, and so if you have Audible or some kind of an audio book version, hearing him read this book is a true treat as well. So I definitely encourage you one way or the other, get this book, read it, listen to it. It will bless you. Absolutely. But thank you guys so much for tuning in. I don't take it for granted that you spend an hour or so each week listening to this show and hearing from the guests that I bring on here. And I really try to bring guests on that I feel like are going to enrich your lives, that are going to encourage you, inspire you, and hopefully educate you about topics as well. And Derwin is definitely someone that I feel like does all of those things incredibly well. So I hope you guys enjoyed hearing from him. And if you want to, share this with a friend who you think might enjoy this episode as well. If you guys need to get in touch with me, I'm pretty easy to find. I am Cole Claiborne on pretty much any social media platform. You can find me on Facebook at Cole Douglas Claiborne. And also you can email me. There's links and stuff in the show notes where you can find how to get in touch with me. And I would love to hear from you. And let me know what you've liked about this episode or previous episodes or just about the show in general. Or if you've got suggestions or guest suggestions, whatever the case may be. Let me know that as well. I would love to hear from you one way or the other. Just let me know that you've been listening and would love to connect with you. But as always, I hope you guys have a great week. I hope you guys find some time to relax and not be in a hurry. And we will see you back next week.